If you're passionate about children's education and ministry, I strongly urge you to pick up a book by C.S. Lewis entitled The Abolition of Man. It's not a lengthy book, but it's dense. The first chapter is entitled Men Without Chess. And just by that title, you can tell Lewis left us a memorable metaphor. No, this is not an exhortation to do 100 push-ups or bench presses. It's rather a reproof of miseducation. Lewis speaks against those who would remove objective moral values from education of young minds. He argues how those values have been foundational, not only in the Western tradition, but all over the world. And once we stop teaching and inculcating lasting virtues and what he calls noble sentiments, we rob humanity from humans. Now to the image. The head rules the belly through the chest. The chest is figuratively the liaison officer, the middle element between the brains and the stomach, the cerebral and visceral, respectively. You may know what's right and wrong up here, but without praiseworthy qualities like courage and honor stored in the middle, you won't be able to control the animal and base desires down here. It is only by properly training the people's chess that we have virtuous societies that we may desire. Now, much of this talk from C.S. Lewis has to do with the natural law, which is beyond us today as we continue in David's life. But I can't help but picture Absalom, David's corrupt son, as one of those men without chess. Here's a man of royal blood, the son of a king, a handsome man, charming, cunning. Yet this is the same man who murdered his half-brother, burned down Joab's field, slept with his father's wives in broad daylight. There's no faith, no integrity. There's no loyalty in his heart. There's vanity, grudge, ambition in there. That's why Absalom could not be like his father David. David, who was a man after God's own heart. Now, before we get to 2 Samuel 18, here's a quick overview of the preceding events. We're in the midst of Absalom's great rebellion. Even if this was prophesied by Nathan... Even if this was divine discipline for David's murder and adultery, it was still wrong for Absalom and those who followed him to turn against David, the Lord's anointed. Among the rebels was the great sage Ahithophel. He gave good advice to Absalom for war strategy. As you recall, it was for Ahithophel to pursue David quickly and catch him while he's not far from Jerusalem. That would be the optimal way to end the division of the nation, minimize casualties, eliminate the older king so that the new king could rise. But the Lord used Hushai, as David's spy, to defeat Ahithophel's advice. God moved Absalom to favor Hushai's advice, which was for Absalom to wait, gather up a massive army, 
and to lead him into battle himself. This plan bought David time, but David didn't linger. He quickly crossed the Jordan River, created some space from the enemy out of the harm's way. Knowing that defeat is inevitable, Ahithophel went home and committed suicide. With the new captain in place, his army gathered. Absalom crossed over the Jordan into the area generally known as the land of Gilead. Meanwhile, David settled in Mahanaim. It's an ideal location near water and fortified. We'll see in today's passage that David actually ends up staying in Mahanaim during the action. Because of this arrangement, chapter 18 starts and ends with the king at the city gates. Sandwiched in the middle of all that is, are two parts. The description of the battle itself, with a quick commentary on Absalom's vanity in verse 18. Then there's the scene with Joab speaking to two messengers. So with that structure in mind, we can portion 2 Samuel 18 into four parts, verses 1 to 5, verses 6 to 18, verses 19 to 23, and verses 24 to 33. What holds the four parts together is the repeated mentions of Absalom. Absalom occupies his father's heart, even if he epitomizes the foolish son of Proverbs. That makes David's dual occupation as the ruler of his house and the ruler of the nation that much harder. When we face struggles like his, like David's, we can turn to passages like today's for guidance. Specifically, David and others demonstrate good qualities to imitate and bad qualities to avoid. Two good qualities are virtues of humility and fervency. The two bad qualities are vices of vanity and timidity. I'll elaborate on them in four steps, and they kind of go back and forth here. One, with humility, take wise counsel. That's verses 1 to 5. With humility, take wise counsel. Two, instead of vanity, submit to authority. Instead of vanity, submit to authority. That's verses 6 to 18. Three, with fervency, use your gifts. That's verses 19 to 23. With fervency, use your gifts. And four, instead of timidity, speak the truth. Instead of timidity, speak the truth. Verses 24 to 33. So I hope you store in your heart, in your chest, humility and fervency and avoid vanity and timidity. So let's start with the first five verses of chapter 18 of 2 Samuel. If you're using the Pew Bible, and if you don't have a Bible, by the way, uh, just feel free to take one as a gift from us to you. If you're following the Pew Bible, just you can turn to page 224, 2 Samuel 18, and I'm just going to read parts at a time, so verses 1 to 5 first. And 
And David numbered the people who were with him and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. Then David sent out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab, one-third under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the hand of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I also will surely go out with you myself. But the people answered, You shall not go out, for if we flee away, they will not care about us, nor if half of us die, will they care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us now, for you are now more help to us in the city. Then the king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate, and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. Now the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captain's orders concerning Absalom. The first when facing immense difficulties with humility, take wise counsel. When I look at what happens at the brink of battle here, I can't help but think of Proverbs 24, 6. By wise counsel, you will wage your own war. And in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. David is wise, first of all, for numbering his men, dividing the army, and delegating authority. The captains Joab and Abishai are David's nephews, and they've been with their uncle for quite a long time. After working together for many years, you'd expect the teamwork to be seamless and effective. But it is surprising that David would entrust a third of the people to Ittai. He's a Gittite, a foreigner from Gath, the Philistia, who has only recently arrived in Israel. The fact that David can incorporate Ittai into his scheme speaks to his skill as a leader of warriors. He's like a smart sports coach who incorporates the skill of the talented rookie with seasoned veterans. As a result of David's wisdom, his men are not just an amorphous mass rushing into the field. They form a well-coordinated body with joints and limbs. But David doesn't always have the best ideas. He's eager to join the men in war. I think his intentions are good but the risk is too great. The people speak against this idea in one voice, it seems. David's the king in the chess game. If he loses, the game is over. He served his people better from Mahanaim, directing his men through his captains. Sure, it took humility for David to accept this counsel. Here's a man who sits on the throne, taking the back seat. If you want the polar opposite of such humility, just look across to the enemy camp. See that arrogant young man leading the charge of his men, not grasping how reckless that is. More on him later. Meanwhile, a true king does what's best for his followers, and among his final instructions, as you see, David commands his three captains to deal gently with Absalom for his sake. And don't miss the key detail in that last part of verse 5. Everyone heard David's demand to spare his son. We'll come back to this as well. Before we go on, here's an application question for you. Are you humble enough to take wise counsel? 
At times, wise counsel may relegate you to the background even if you're used to the spotlight. Are you okay with that? At times, your humbled state is what's best for the grander spiritual warfare or the building of the church or edification of the church, local or universal. This is something even pastors like myself must learn constantly. Biblical humility occupies a safe spot between self-importance and self-forgetfulness. So take a cue from Paul. At one point, he's stuck in prison and unable to go anywhere. The apostles still rejoice in the furtherance of the gospel and the preaching of Christ. See that in Philippians 1. God's servant may be chained, but God's word is not chained. If David and Paul were good examples, Theotrephus in 3 John is a bad example. The first thing we learn about him in 3 John chapter 9, I mean, verse 9, he loves to have the preeminence among the church members. He was about to learn a tough lesson from Apostle John himself. Before you're humiliated like Theotrephus, put on humility and take wise counsel from others. Again, that's what David does. Back to the story, and let's see what happens as the plans unfold in the field. So again, back to 2 Samuel 18, verses 6 to 18. So the people went out into the field of battle against Israel, and the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. The people of Israel were overthrown there before the servants of David, and a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day. For the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Then Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule. The mule went under the thick boughs of, the, of a great terebinth tree, and his head caught in the terebinth, so he was left hanging between heaven and earth. And the mule which was under him went on. Now a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth tree. So Joab said to the man who told him, You just saw him? And why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have given you ten shekels of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Beware, lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise, I would have dealt falsely against my own life. For there is nothing hidden from the king, and you yourself would have set yourself against me. Then Joab said, I cannot linger with you. And he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. And ten young men who bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom and struck and killed him. So Joab blew the trumpet, and the people returned from pursuing Israel. For Joab held back the people, and they took Absalom and cast him into a large pit in the woods and laid a very large heap of stones over him. Then all Israel fled, everyone to his, own, his tent. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself, which is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and to this day it is called Absalom's Monument. So in this sad account of Absalom's defeat and downfall, we learn that instead of vanity, 
we must submit to authority. David's son was the very definition of vanity. He followed his youthful lusts and selfish ambitions. He faced the consequences. The noble man met his ignoble end. You almost feel sorry for him, the young man, and how his life turns out as we look at verse 18. Now back in chapter 14, verse 27, we saw that Absalom had three sons, but it it seems, as you see here, that they all died quite young. We're not told how. Without sons and estranged from his own father, he sought fulfillment in power, in glory, and he sure got ahead of himself. He wasn't willing to wait for someone to put up a monument for him. He took his own initiative in the King's Valley, located near Jerusalem in Kidron Valley. A Bible quiz to remember the last person who set up a monument for himself. It was Israel's first king, Saul, at Carmel, back in 1 Samuel 15, verse 12. Like Saul, Absalom had major spiritual problems, trouble submitting to God's authority. That was his monumental error. Now, those who refuse to submit to God's authority most often do not submit to those authorities appointed by God. Those who are vain do not grasp that the king is God's minister who does not bear the sword in vain. For this reason, God was on David's side. Even though David's men were outnumbered, Absalom's strength in numbers was nullified in the woods of Ephraim. Uh, this is somewhere in the land of Gilead, east of Jordan, probably near Mahanaim, mentioned in Joshua 17. Anyway, in the military struggle, it was as if nature itself fought for the Lord's anointed. The holes in the ground, the branches of the trees were aiding David's cause. There's one tree who had the honor of snaring Absalom as he fled on his mule. He must have been rushing and fleeing and didn't look where he was going. Many assume it was his beautiful long hair that got caught in the terebinth. Now, that would be poetic justice for such a man of vanity, but just as his head, and he probably hanging there by his neck. But there is poetic justice in that the insubordinate son dies at the hand of the insubordinate captain. Joab makes a quick end of Absalom, despite the reminders from the man who found them first, reminders of David's plea. The first man didn't care for money or emblems of glory like a belt. He, the un, unnamed man didn't care about making a name for himself. He cared most about following orders. He feared the king. He knew that if he had killed Absalom, sooner or later David would figure it out, the truth, and Joab could easily blame him if David gets angry. But for Joab, there's little regard for authority. He's in no mood to deal gently with Absalom, piercing him with three spears and then sending ten executioners to finish him off would be the polar opposite of dealing gently. 
That's what we call an overkill. Then Joab blew the trumpet to signal to David's men that the enemies had been defeated. Absalom's course was disposed in the woods, and once they learned that their leader was gone, the rebels retreated. They too learned the hard way. Instead of vanity, they should have submitted to authority. Let's again stop for application. Now, you may find it difficult to relate to Absalom, but maybe, just maybe, we're closer to Joab. Even if we sympathize with Joab, feel his rage, and see Absalom as he is, the most dangerous man in Israel, the job of the captain was to follow the order of the king. He knows better. This is a pattern in Joab's life that goes back to his dealings with Abner in 2 Samuel 3. We'll see something similar later in chapter 20. And finally in 1 Kings 1, when he himself takes the wrong side. Joab's constant disregard for the king is going back to haunt him. Learn from his flaws. Don't make a habit of ignoring authorities God has placed over your life. Talk about parents, teachers, bosses, government, church leaders. Joab will have to answer for his poor choices in the future. For now, he must quickly report the victory of the king's army. So let's read 2 Samuel 18, 19-23. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run now and take the news to the king, how the Lord has avenged them of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You shall not take the news this day, for you shall take the news another day. But today you shall take no news, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. So the Cushite bowed himself to Joab and ran. And Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, But whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. So Joab said, Why will you run, my son, since you have no news ready? But whatever happens, he said, let me run. So he said to him, run. Then Ahimaaz ran by way of the plain and outran the Cushite. So a simple principle here is this. With fervency, use your gifts. And that's especially true, and we should serve more, right, in times of turmoil. And I won't be long on this point. Now, from verses 19 to the rest of this chapter, we'll follow Ahimaaz, the son of the priest Zadok. Recall that he and Jonathan, another son of a priest, were key operatives in relaying enemy intel from Absalom's courts to David's ear. Even though they were young and fast, they were almost captured in Bahurim. They managed to escape with some help from the locals. They reached the king in the wilderness. And we see Ahimaaz again in today's passage as a participant in the fight. That's pretty straightforward. Now, the more difficult questions have to do with the motivations of Ahimaaz for insisting on running, and Joab for not sending him at first. There are many theories. Here's my take. Even though Joab's cruel to Absalom, I think he's actually looking out for Ahimaaz here. Joab wants to spare him from being a bearer of bad report. 
Sure, David's army won the day, but the news of his son's death would no doubt taint it. The king might even lash out in anger. So I think the captain wanted to send someone less attached to David, dare I say, more dispensable than Ahimaaz. In this case, it was a foreign soldier from Cush, the south of Israel. Ahimaaz, however, is eager to use his gifts. He has a youthful fervency. Now we'll see in a moment he's not the best at ad-libbing a message. But we appreciate the man's effort and energy. He ends up taking some kind of shortcut to Mahanaim so that he passes the Cushite. Let's see what happens as the two messengers arrive. And here's the final reading of this chapter, verses 24 to 33. Now David was sitting between the two gates as the watchman went up to the roof over the gate to the wall, lifted his eyes and looked, and there was a man running alone. Then the watchman cried out and told the king, and the king said, If he is alone, there's news in his mouth. And he came rapidly and drew near. Then the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, There is another man running alone. And the king said, He also brings news. So the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. So Ahimaaz called out and said to the king, all is well. Then he bowed down with his face to the earth before the king and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. The king said, is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimaaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant and me, your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what it was about. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. Just then the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, There is good news, my lord the king, for the Lord has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? So the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise against you to do harm be like that young man. Then the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said thus, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. O Absalom, my son, my son. So as we follow the runners to David's location, we find that in pressurized moments, instead of timidity, we ought to speak the truth. So we return to David, waiting at the gate of Mahanaim. He has the burden of the entire nation on his shoulders. As king, he hopes that there's minimal loss of lives. In a civil war like this one, a win can feel like a loss. Though he's eager to claim victory, at the same time, as he thinks about the thousands on his side and thousands on their side, his heart is most burdened for one, Absalom. He's wicked, yes, but still, that's his son. David can't give up hope. What father does? He's like the father in the parable of the prodigal son, looking out and hoping for his son's return. 
The watchman nearby is also eager for some update. He spots a man running, then another. Davis' experience tells him that they bring reports from the field. As the first runner draws near the city, the watchman recognizes the distinctive stride. It's Ahimaaz. David's starting to hope. Ahimaaz, however, only has a few moments before the Cushite arrives behind them. Now, we compare the two messengers, and both are eager and quick to share the news of victory. As king, you don't mind hearing such good report over and over again. And both messengers deliver it clearly. But when David raises the question about Absalom, Ahimaaz is not as clear. He seems to muddle the message in verse 29. Even if Ahimaaz didn't know the specifics, like exactly how Absalom died, he knew that he died. The only explanation I have for this vague answer given is that he's afraid to tell David the truth. David doesn't have to wait long for it because soon the Cushite arrives. The, for, the foreigner straightforwardly provides what the king sought. So Ahimaaz missed an opportunity to speak the truth. Yes, it's a hard truth, but an important one. I'm sure most of us can relate to him as we now think about application here. How many times have we sat across someone but we're hesitant to broach a top topic, deathly afraid of awkwardness, imagining the worst possible scenario. Say there's an evangelistic opportunity. Maybe you've already shared about God's love and the good stuff, but who wants to bring up sin, disobedience, breaking God's law, and hell? We may have the feet of Ahimaaz, Maybe it's not shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Or alternatively, we just might be snared by the fear of man. It's the job of the messengers to speak the truth, and it's the job of the hearer to accept the truth. It takes courage on both sides. We feel for David. What a difficult thing to stomach for a father. I have trouble dealing with my boy getting a scratch or catching a cold. I can't imagine learning that your child has died. I know it's a pain that some of us in this congregation know personally. I'm not here to say that I know how it feels. I'm not even here to point you to another person who does. I'm here to tell you that our God in heaven knows. He understands. Such grief, that sorrow of the bereaved father is at the core of the good news of Jesus. We sang about it earlier. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away. God the Father watched his only begotten Son cry out at the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let me back up a bit. How did the Son of God, born as the Holy One, end up forsaken? 
How is it that the perfect God-man died in shame like Absalom, hanging on a tree, pierced by soldiers? Well, the Bible tells us in Galatians 3.13 that when he was crucified, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus hung on a tree for us, for our life and our blessing. We are cursed as long as we strive for righteousness in our own strength. We'll inevitably fail to keep all of God's commands. We've lied, coveted, stolen, committed murder with hate, adultery with lust. We deserve the guilty sentence for our rebellion against the Lord. It took a heroic sacrifice from Jesus to redeem us. At the cross, he paid the penalty of our sin as our substitute. Talking about hell, we're talking about eternity away from God. He took that upon himself. Having completed the work, Jesus declared it is finished. He gave up his life voluntarily. He was buried, but on the third day, he rose again and gave many proofs that he's alive before ascending to heaven. Someday he'll return to judge all mankind. Before it's too late, before he returns, or before you breathe your last, turn from your sins and turn to Christ. Give up your sense of security in yourself, self-righteousness. Humble yourself. Receive everlasting life as a gift from God himself. None of us can reach heaven by our good works. God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the greatest news ever, even as it exposes the ugly truth of our sin. This gospel must be remembered, celebrated, and proclaimed.